With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the AgNet News Hour from AgNet West. Here's your host, Danielle Leal. Hey everyone, Danielle Leal here, and thanks for getting your agricultural news with me today. California table olive growers applaud continued duties on Spanish imports. The U.S. will continue to impose countervailing duties on imports of Spanish ripe olives after it lowered rates of the tariffs to satisfy findings by a World Trade Organization dispute settlement panel. The California Table Olive Growers have praised the move. Elizabeth Carazana, Director of Trade and Technical Affairs for the Olive Growers Council of California, said she was pleased that the U.S. Trade Representative and the government, quote, decided to continue to uphold these safeguards which have made a huge impact for the table olive industry in California. That was today's California Farm Bureau Food and Farm News Report, and now let's get into our show headlines. The recent growth in exports for the pistachio industry. During a panel discussion on exports at the World Egg Expo, Richard Matoyan, president of American Pistachio Growers, says the tree nut industry relies on exports, and there's been an increase over the years. Matoyan speaks to that growth. I uh, presented a chart that showed um, our rank in uh, exports uh, compared with other commodities in the state. And if you go back just 20 years ago, uh, we weren't even on the top 15 list as far as exported commodities. But because of the, the growth in the production of pistachios and because of the demand for American-grown pistachios around the world, uh, that's helped to fuel uh, exports and it certainly helped to fuel um, the economic growth uh, that's occurred within our industry. Stay tuned as we'll have more on this topic in the coming shows, but right now here's Agnet West Brian German with another agricultural report. There are reasons for California citrus growers to be hopeful for a good year in 2023. President and CEO of California Citrus Mutual, Casey Kramer, described where they're at in the season and said despite some bumps in the road, conditions look like they could be set up for a positive year for the industry. I think we're right in the thick of things, and uh, I want to be too optimistic, and I don't ever want to be too pessimistic. I think, you know, we're seeing right now is an okay market. Depends on the variety, depends on the location. Our export season is in full swing now. Uh, we missed a little bit of a window with the, the rains, the welcome rains, but missed some of the export opportunities. But uh, So we're hoping to catch up on, on the export and continue to push more sales throughout the rest of the remainder of the season. And, and we're hopeful that it is going to be in, wind up be a, a profitable year for growers. Even with some improvements in market conditions, there are some questions for almond production in 2023. Senior analyst covering fruits and tree nuts for Rabo AgriFinance, David Magana, described some of the unknowns that will be impacting the market in 2023. Obviously weather. We don't know. We're starting the critical pollination season, so we will see that. And also yields not necessarily associated with weather, but potentially lasting impacts from deficit irrigation and salinity buildup. So we will see the effect on that. Another question mark, acreage. How many acres will remain in a productive stage this year after challenging couple of seasons in terms of prices? How many of those have come out? How many of those have not had the proper maintenance? 
So we will see that, but uh, definitely some bright spots on the supply side compared to last year. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. Thanks, Brian, and stay tuned as we'll have more of today's agriculture news and farm features here on the Agnet News Hour. Don't forget if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and at statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search our name of Agnet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet West. It's available on both Apple and Android devices. Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance Posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells Posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at FELS.net. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal, tossing it right on over to Sabrina Halverson with today's National Spotlight. In today's National Spotlight, Montana Attorney General Austin Knudsen and attorneys general from 23 other states filed a lawsuit against the Biden administration's Waters of the U.S. rule. The group says the EPA's WOTUS rule goes beyond the power Congress delegated in the Clean Water Act, raises serious constitutional concerns, and runs roughshod over the Administrative Procedures Act. Knudsen says the administration's water rule limits the use of land and violates the law and U.S. Constitution. He says the EPA greatly overstepped its authority by trying to claim jurisdiction over land and water not connected to any navigable water. The attorneys general say they're fighting to protect farm and ranching operations, mining and energy workers, and infrastructure and housing projects across the country that will be harmed if the rule takes effect. The states will motion for a preliminary injunction to stop the rule while it's under litigation. The U.S. pork industry is awaiting a decision from the Supreme Court regarding its case against California's Prop 12, which tries to regulate pork coming in from other states. Tyler Bettine is the Director of Producer Services with the National Pork Producers Council. He says one state should not be allowed to regulate commerce in others. As you know, we argued our case before the U.S. Supreme Court back in October, looking forward to hopefully seeing a result or decision from the court late February into March of this year. If we get a favorable ruling from the Supreme Court as we've challenged this on interstate commerce issues within the Constitution, we'll have that opportunity then to go back and argue our case before the district court in California, recognizing the impact this has not just on pork production, but across all sectors of our economy should one state be able to pass a ballot initiative on moral grounds that impacts interstate commerce across the country. He says producers should be able to determine how to best run their farms. Exactly. You hit the nail on the head there. This is about producers having certainty on how they grow their operations responsibly. And if we have multiple requirements from multiple states, certainly that hinders our ability to get affordable food to people that want it. No one's saying that different customers or retailers or others can't dictate what they would like to see on their shelves should consumers want to pay for it. But this is about preserving that choice for all consumers. 
Meanwhile, export opportunities for the pork industry finished out 2022 very strongly, valued at $7.7 billion with a volume of 2.6 million metric tons. Courtney Knupp, vice president of international market development for the National Pork Board, says the industry finished with a top three export year, even with the challenges with the global marketplace. About 27.5% of U.S. pork production was exported, and that attributed $61 to the value of each hog marketed. So we're very pleased with it. We successfully diversified and grew in key markets in the Western Hemisphere and Southeast Asia. Nup says this was the second highest year when it came to variety meats and the highest value year. And that's really key because as we have talked all year long, those are products that won't be consumed in our domestic market. So finding homes for them at higher values in our export markets enables us to capture value for the parts of the animal consistently throughout the year. And that's just a huge story. When it comes to export countries, Nup said Mexico was at the top of the list. Almost half of our exports went to our neighbor to the south. Huge benefits, not just for hams, but we're increasing product mix in the market. We're doing a lot of promotion activities, targeting increased demand for the loin, which we're trying to do in many markets, but it's really working in Mexico. The goal for 2023 is to continue to grow across the value chain by moving along key markets in the Western Hemisphere and the Central American markets. That's today's National Spotlight. I'm Sabrina Halverson for Agnet West. Thanks, Sabrina. And now for today's Livestock Report, here's Randall Wiseman. Well, in today's Livestock News, cattle producers now have a new tool that could help them make better and more informed marketing decisions. Gary Crawford has more details. For years, USDA has published data on base and net prices for cattle transactions. But there's not a lot of information in between. Ah, but there is now. Taylor Cox with USDA's Ag Marketing Service says the new online pilot cattle contract library is up and running, giving contract information on more than just the base and net prices that packers are offering. And of course, in most transactions... The load of cattle, for example, will go through a series of of premiums and discounts. And that's what this library showcases is the most heavily used uh, premiums and discounts. And we certainly plan to expand on that uh, as we understand the contracts better. Cox says this is a pilot project, a project designed to answer the question. Is this a useful tool? Can a producer take this, easily understand it and digest it and use it in their business model? Cox says the project will expire end of September, but Congress could vote to make it permanent. To check it out, go online, search USDA Cattle Contract Library. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Thanks, Gary. And scientists with USDA's Ag Research Service are developing new tests to identify and track the COVID virus in wild and domestic animals. Funded by the American Rescue Plan, USDA's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service is implementing $300 million to conduct monitoring and surveillance of susceptible animals for the COVID virus. Through the initiative, ARS, in partnership with APHIS, is conducting five research projects to improve its understanding of the virus and to help APHIS accomplish its goal of building an early warning system to potentially prevent or limit the next zoonotic disease outbreak or global pandemic. Now, two of the projects call for developing easy-to-use field tests to quickly identify COVID infection in wildlife and domestic animals. Currently, all official testing of animals for COVID requires sending samples to certified laboratories and can take a week or more to provide answers. This may be too long to prevent early spread of the infection. 
And the National Pork Producers Council recently led efforts to overturn EPA's new proposal on rodenticides. EPA, of course, did announce a proposal to overturn decades-long policies that regulate farmers and ranchers' use of the product. The proposed changes would enhance current restrictions, create new certifications and trainings, and add more requirements to labels, reclassify some products to restricted-use pesticides, and if not the most important aspect, present a major biosecurity risk to farms. Rodenticide, of course, is an important part of the ag industry. Uncontrolled mice and rats have a detrimental effect on the environment as well as farms and ranches. The National Pork Producers Council organized and is leading a coalition of eight other ag organizations calling on EPA to withdraw its proposals. In regulatory comments, the coalition highlighted that EPA's choice to designate rodenticides as restricted-use products will undermine animal health and welfare. I'm Randall Wiseman for Agnet West. This is the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. We'll be back in just a moment with more of the day's national headlines and local reports when we return. But don't forget, if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search Agnet News Hour or Agnet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet News Hour. It's available on both Apple and Android devices. You're going to need me. You're going to need us. All of us. You're going to need our help with your water. Your air. Your food. You're going to need our determination. Our compassion. You're going to need the next generation of leaders to face the challenges the future will bring. And we promise we'll be there when you need us. Today, 4-H is growing the next generation of leaders. Support us at 4-H.org. You've been listening to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. Welcome back. We've got more of the day's agriculture news right now. Plans for a plant-based COVID vaccine are shut down. That's coming up on This Land of Ours. It looks like the first plant-based COVID-19 vaccine has withered on the vine. Medicago, the Quebec City, Canada drug manufacturer, has announced that it's closing down operations. While Health Canada has approved Medicago's plant-based vaccine, the World Health Organization has officially given notice that the vaccine will not receive its approval. That decision is based on what some within the research community see as a WHO policy technicality. The plant host utilized in Medicago's vaccine is a relative of the tobacco plant, and the WHO has a strict, long-standing policy against engaging with tobacco products and companies. As well, Philip Morris, a major tobacco company, holds a 21% investment stake in Medicago. Based on those facts, the WHO has officially declined to give its approval for the Medicago vaccine. I'm Sabrina Halverson for Agnet West. This is the Agricultural Law and Tax Report. I'm Roger McOwen. When cattle are grazed on a leased pasture that also has active oil and gas operations, who's responsible if the cattle get into the tank battery area and die? I'll get back to the report in a moment, but I want you to know that Schrader Real Estate and Auction Company has sold farm to ranch land and farm equipment in 40 states. Learn how the Schrader family can help your family. Visit SchraderAuction.com. That's S-C-H-R-A-D-E-R Auction.com. In a Texas case, a tenant grazed 650 head of cows on land he leased from a landowner. He didn't look at the pasture before sending the cattle. 
An oil and gas company had a mineral lease on some of the leased pasture, but the mineral lease did not require the company to fence off its portion of the property or its equipment. The company was notified that cattle would be grazing the pasture, and they made sure that the electric fence around the tank battery and well site was working. But as soon as the cattle were turned out, they began knocking down the fence and getting inside the operations by the tank battery. The fence was repaired, but the cattle continued to get in the area around the tank battery on multiple occasions, even after additional fence repairs. Ultimately, 132 head of cattle died, and the issue was which party was responsible. The court said it wasn't the oil company's problem. The mineral lease didn't require the cattle to be fenced out. The court also determined the company didn't act in a willful or intentional manner to harm the cattle. It was the cattle owner's responsibility to check the property and take steps to keep his cattle away from the oil and gas operations. This has been the Agricultural Law and Tax Report. I'm Roger McOwen. It is the latest investment in the realm of climate smart agriculture. We're announcing publicly the level of funding coming out of the Inflation Reduction Act for Conservation. In four programs, we're going to commit in 2023 roughly $850 million. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack with the recent announcement before members of the National Association of Conservation Districts. The funding is targeted for four Natural Resources Conservation Service offerings. The Environmental Quality Incentives Program, Conservation Stewardship Program, Regional Conservation Partnership Program, and Agricultural Conservation Easement Program. $250 million in EQIP, $250 million in CSP, $250 million in the Regional Conservation Partnership Program, and about $100 million in the Easement Program. Funding is designed to expand financial and technical assistance for producers to utilize advanced conservation practices, all with the goal of direct climate mitigation benefits. Practices such as cover cropping, conservation tillage, wetland restoration, and tree planting, among many others. And because of these investments, we're going to be able to help so many more folks to start this. And these are incentive payments to get you started. It might not cover all your acres. So, But if we can get them started on a few acres, they might do this on all the acres. That's NRCS Chief Terry Cosby. He knows the significance of the increased program funding isn't just about the incentive. This is not merely a backlog program because we have this new custom base out there that also want to participate in these programs. And so how do we take that backlog plus the new customers that are going to be walking through the door and make sure these investments are used wisely? Application dates will vary by program. For EQIP and CSP, producers should apply by their state NRCS office ranking dates. ASEP programs receiving this latest Inflation Reduction Act funding have an application deadline of March 17th. Meanwhile, RCPP funding will become available early this spring. More details are available online at www.nrcs.usda.gov. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. You're listening to Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leo. We'll be right back in just a moment with more agriculture news. 
Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at FELS.net. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West, providing you with statewide agriculture news daily. I'm your host, Danielle Leal. Now let's listen in to more featured segments. Bottom line, grain analysts see additional support coming in this grain trade into early March, and March begins a week from today. We expect USDA setting initial corn acres at the Outlook Forum, 90.5 to maybe 91 million. Total production for the year, just over $14.5 billion. We see USDA soybean acres up about a million from last year. That would be near $88.5 million. Production near $4.5 billion bushels. Now, all wheat acres near $48.5, that would be a jump of nearly $3 million from a year ago. Elsewhere in the wheat trade, France undergoing an unprecedented winter drought. Many of their key growing areas haven't seen rain since January 21st. Soft wheat and winter barley are just now emerging from dormancy. AgriLiquid invites you to Commodity Classic and the trade show. They'll be at booth number 2749. Learn about Pro Germinator, Capitalize, and more, and learn how they can help you apply less, but expect more this growing season. AgriLiquid at Commodity Classic. This is the Bottom Line Report. Lean hogs may be setting up for a contra-seasonal lower move in our view. Yesterday's high was over our resistance area. Now we watch yesterday's low for April, 86.25. I'm Mark Oppold, wishing you a profitable day. Good day, everybody. Albert J. Hernandez, the Untamed Chef for Agnet West. Welcome to the California Kitchen, where you can learn how to cook from an award-winning chef in under three minutes or less. I'm your host with the most. Let's get untamed. I hope everybody had a fun Super Bowl. Personally, I don't care to watch it, but I do like making really, really great food, and that's exactly what I did. Now, if you followed my brisket recipe, you're probably wondering, Chef, we got a whole lot of brisket. What do we do? We use that same exact delicious brisket, and we turn it into something completely different. Here is my recipe or technique I should say more than that to do a beautiful cast iron brisket saute now the very first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to be cooking this on a flat grill or like a blackstone grill like an outdoor grill and I know everybody has one of these this makes life a whole lot easy trust me when I say that so very simply what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn on my grill I'm going to start it off on high and then once I season the grill I'm just going to put some oil salt and pepper and I'm gonna let that sit for about two to three minutes knowing just that everything is nice and hot we don't ever want to put food on a cold grill so three minutes gets it nice and hot on high then I'm gonna turn it down to low and I'm going to put my brisket I'm gonna take my brisket I'm gonna slice it into chunks uh, maybe slices actually and then we're going to put a good sear on it I'm gonna add to this some onions I love doing a nice forage mushroom. I believe in this case, uh, we're doing a beach mushroom. 
and serrano chilies. But I'm going to put that saute on the other side of the grill. So I'm just going to get a, put a good color on the brisket first. This is very, very important so we can really build a nice flavor. As you start to get that brisket nice and seared, it's going to start, that fat's going to start to melt. It's going to be just phenomenal. And then I'm going to use a spatula, a, a sharp spatula to cut that brisket up into nice small pieces and we're going to start folding that into our mixture of our mushroom pepper and onion i'm going to fold it in and i'm going to stick it just in the corner this is very very important of the grill i'm going to top that with a little bit more oil and i'm going to bring the heat up just a little tiny bit i'm going to add a little bit more salt and pepper over the top if i think it needs it and usually it does because brisket it's one of those very incredible meats that needs a lot of good seasoning to have a great, great flavor because it is a very heavy meat. Uh, so very simply, I'm going to just add a little more seasoning to this. I'm going to give it a nice stir up, make sure everything is as uniform as possible in terms of the sizes of the meat and enjoy. You are going to absolutely love this recipe and I hope it finds everyone well. For this and many more of my untamed tips, tricks, and all things on Tame. Go to www.ajhtheuntamedchef.com. And as always, this is Albert J. Hernandez, The Untamed Chef for Agnet West. The latest round of investments via the federal government's Rural Partners Network was recently announced, part of continuing efforts to improve historically underserved rural communities. The Department of Agriculture is announcing $262 million from Rural Development to Mission Area, focused on projects that will not only create good-paying jobs, but also provide a wide array of opportunities in these communities, from low-income housing to renewable energy projects to improve water and wastewater systems to expanding educational health care facilities. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack says the current round of funding is targeted for 68 projects within the Rural Part Network in nine states and Puerto Rico. Since its launch last April, 36 community partner networks are active in 10 states and the Puerto Rican Commonwealth. The purpose of this is to actually provide people on the ground who will serve as community liaisons between those communities and the federal government. One of the things we wanted to do was to be able to empower those community liaisons to work with community building organizations and the citizens of these areas to identify projects that would be of most significance and importance in terms of helping to improve the economy and quality of life in those communities. Another aspect of the community network is rural desk officers, which partner with community liaisons to address issues. These are individuals that have been selected in roughly 20 federal departments and agencies that service states and communities. The rural desk officer has as their responsibility to basically be able to be a problem solver. So if there is an issue that crops up that requires the DOT's attention or requires the Department of Education's attention, we have some individual the community liaison can go to immediately and get the help and assistance and the right person in that department to deal with whatever problem arises. So it's really designed to make sure that we have successful projects. In terms of ground level examples of rural partner network projects, the secretary looks to the Grand Canyon State, Arizona, 
We're funding and financing the construction of a healthcare facility in Casa Grande. We're going to help construct and equip a 131,500 square foot healthcare facility, providing a over $52 million loan to the Sun Life facility so that it could build this health center. Another example is the Yuma County Improvement District is focusing on improving water and wastewater improvements for communities in Arizona. Uh, we're providing them an additional $6 million to help assist in improving wastewater treatment. There are large grants like the ones I've just mentioned. There are also very small grants where a community facility may need a piece of equipment or a hospital may need a piece of equipment or a school, in which case we're providing the resources to make that happen. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. This is the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. We'll be back in just a moment with more of the day's national headlines and local reports when we return. But don't forget, if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search Agnet News Hour or Agnet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet News Hour. It's available on both Apple and Android devices. Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance Posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells Posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at FELS.net. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. I'm your host, Danielle Leal. For today's interview segment, we take a listen to a conversation I had with Mike Newland, the Director of Agricultural Business Development at the Propane Education and Research Council during the National Association of Farm Broadcasting Annual Convention. You got it, Mike. So today we are in Kansas City talking with farm broadcasters like myself. And what are you talking with them about today? Well, a lot of folks are interested in a couple of main questions, supply, price questions for our fuel. Uh, so I'll hit the easy ones first. So we're in a great spot on supply. We tend to track everything versus a five-year average as far as inventory goes. We're well within that five-year window, so we are in a good spot. The big variable within the ag space comes from the Midwest, and that's the grain drying market. We had a very normal year for grain drying here in the Midwest on corn. So corn's the big uh, variable for us here in the Midwest, and that was a very normal. So pricing, we're in a good spot. We love talking about pricing right now. We tend to track our fuel versus crude oil versus diesel versus gasoline. We're always at a discount to those. We're at a very big discount right now to those. So uh, the big energy run-up in price has not impacted our fuel price too much and we're uh, we're in a really good spot so we've got a great message to tell our fuel is abundant meaning we've got a lot of it we export about 60 percent of the available propane today our goal and our job at perk is to find out can we find new uses and uses for that so that's what we do that's why we're here and promoting our message and uh, let's speak a little bit to that message for our folks in california um Go ahead and tell me why it's beneficial that they may take up some of your resources. Absolutely. So I think propane should dominate the California market. We've got some ways to go there. When I start thinking farm applications in California, my brain immediately goes to irrigation. 
irrigation, especially on some of the crops in California, are very time sensitive and you have to irrigate when that crop needs it. You're growing a lot of high value crops, it's imperative that those get watered on time. Propane allows you to do that. You're not dependent upon the grid being up. Uh, unfortunately, you guys do have some issues and um, variability within your electric grid. Propane irrigation takes all those out of control, puts those back in your control at the farm gate level. So I think that's first and foremost. Second, we to hit on it a little bit, is power. We've got tremendous opportunities and equipment for power generation you've got large demand on your farm, we do a number of vineyards, we do a lot of other unique things in California. Propane power is incredibly clean, it's affordable when you compare it to the California grid, so I think it's a great opportunity. If you're not interested in prime power, we also do have backup power solutions for any size operation. So those are the things that my brain immediately goes to. In addition to that, our council does approve a incentive program, Propane Farm Incentive Program. It gives money back to anybody that's looking to expand and buy new propane powered equipment. You can find out all the details on that at propane.com slash farm incentive. Uh, that check comes right to you as a farmer uh, once you purchase the equipment. Couple quick application processes, but a very easy process for you to get an incentive from our industry back to you for trying our fuel. And Michael, is there anything else that you might like to add that might intrigue our listeners today in California to maybe utilize propane? I think if you're interested, just remember in new equipment, if you're looking to expand, add equipment, chances are you can do it with propane. Uh, we're Like I said, we're at a big historic discount to other fuels in the marketplace today. Our fuel is naturally clean. What that means for us is we can meet your California emissions right now, right out of the gate without any extra after treatment type situation. So I encourage folks to go to our webpage, propane.com slash agriculture. That'll show all the technologies, all the equipment that's available. We've got links on there to all the OEM manufacturers, the original equipment manufacturers. So you can uh, explore on your own and we're here to answer any questions that you've got. You got it. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Absolutely, thank you. Again, if you'd like to find out more information, you can visit propane.com agriculture. You're listening to Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Danielle Leo. We'll be right back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Why do we have GMOs? Actually, we've been modifying crops for thousands of years to prevent crop loss from pest and weather damage, to grow more food on less land, even to improve nutrition. Today, GMOs are developed for the same reasons. With genetic engineering, scientists can change and improve crops more easily and quickly. Feed your mind with more GMO facts on FDA's website. You've been listening to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Danielle Leal. Welcome back. We've got more of the day's agriculture news right now. Who is responsible when an injury or accident occurs on a farming operation? Workplace safety incidents and accidents happen on farming operations, but who takes responsibility? Ashley Sturgill with Zenith, who focuses on workers' compensation, says it's not just one person to blame. 
And too often, sometimes we are doing these incident investigations involving like these really traumatic injuries, fatalities. It's really easy to go to that blame. Who's responsible? Well, the employee is. They did it wrong. They didn't follow, follow protocol. So then I ask the question, well, who allowed them to behave in that manner? Who was allowing them? And I mentioned that in the class, like I'll go out and do these incident investigations. And everyone saw that person doing that day over, day over, day over, day over. And no one stopped to say, hey, that's not how we do this. Another person in the class talked about the seatbelts. Like the equipment won't operate well, the seatbelt connected, so they just connect the seatbelt and sit on it. So their equipment will operate. Well, someone knows that. They see that, but it's not being corrected. So we want to find out really what's happening. But as far as kind of going back to your original question about who's responsible, everyone's responsible. And it will depend on what happened and what government agencies are involved. There can be fines for owner operators. There can be jail time, depending on what the situation. Um, employees can be written up. They can be terminated you know if they are in clear violation and there's employers have to be careful here that they have a consistency in their follow-up discipline communication training with their employees foremen and supervisors can be held accountable like everyone holds some kind of um, responsibility when it comes to this the uc ag experts talk webinar series is continuing next month the one-hour webinars are designed for growers and pest management professionals and highlight various pest management and horticultural topics for crops grown in California. The next edition is scheduled for Wednesday, March 22nd and will feature Dr. Florent Truius. He will be speaking on common fungal and bacterial canker diseases affecting almonds and will share best management strategies. On Wednesday, April 19th, Dr. Cindy Cron will present information on insect identification, the many insects that are beneficial in vineyards, along with economic thresholds for pests that cause damage and vector diseases. Finally, Dr. Jalendra Rajal will be covering various aspects of integrated pest management of flat-headed borer. Information on the webinar series can be found at ucanr.edu slash sites slash talk. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. Thanks, Brian. And in more agriculture news, the U.S.-United Kingdom trade discussions are ongoing. Mexico issues a new decree. The dialogue between the United States and the United Kingdom continues this week, while Mexico issued a new decree regarding biotech corn. Michael Clements shares more on where U.S. ag stands around the globe. The United States and the United Kingdom continue to explore the path towards a trade agreement, though there are still several obstacles that need to be addressed. Dave Salmonson, American Farm Bureau Federation Senior Government Affairs Director, explains. Both the countries are engaging in something called dialogues, where they are exploring issues, trying to get better relationships. The U.S. and U.K. in agriculture have a pretty robust trade. Each country sends about $2 billion worth annually to the other, but it certainly is something that definitely can be improved. The United Kingdom's Secretary of Environment, Food and Rural Affairs called for a free trade agreement with the U.S. this week in Washington. Farm Bureau certainly supports that. There's several barriers. The United Kingdom is still moving away from their time as being part of the European Union. Their regulatory system needs a push. They need to move closer to a science-based standard system that we have. They need to reduce their tariffs. They've signed trade agreements this past year with both Australia and New Zealand where they're phasing out tariffs on food imports, and we need the same treatment. Meanwhile, Mexico issued a new decree regarding importing genetically modified corn. They want to phase out fairly quickly the imports of white white corn from the U.S. and look to some point next year or beyond to phase down imports of yellow corn. None of this has any basis in science, so this is giving more 
impetus to the folks urging our trade representative's office just to bring a case under the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement against Mexico. Certainly, we think this is a very clear trade violation of that agreement. Michael Clements, Washington. One might wonder why USDA plans to lead an agricultural trade mission this June to a top farm and food export market, Japan. As Ryan Brewster of the Foreign Agricultural Service explains, We signed a U.S.-Japan trade agreement that was signed in 2019. So the last time we had a trade mission to Japan, we didn't have this agreement in place. A trade deal that has given several U.S. ag exports preferential treatment from and increased sales to Japan. The June 5th through 8th trade mission will be unique in that we're going to do a two-city trade mission. So we're going to start off with a visit in Tokyo, and then we're going to move over to Osaka. Applications are being accepted from interested participants like ag trade groups, commodity organizations, and state ag departments through February 27th. Details are available online at www.fas.usda.gov. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. New numbers on farms and land and farms. What are some of the trends associated with the 2023 edition of USDA's annual report on the number of farms and land and farms in our country? USDA's Rod Bain talks with Tony Dorn of the National Agricultural Statistics Service in this next report. The latest numbers looking at the number of farms and landed farms in the U.S. is now out. And according to Tony Dorn of USDA's National Agricultural Statistics Service, For 2022, the number of farms is estimated at 2,002,700, down 9,350 farms from 2021. Caused primarily by a reduction in the number of small farms last year. In this annual report, however, the number of farms increased in all sales categories except the 1,000 to 9,999 category and the 10,000 to 99,000 sales classes. Also, over 7% of all farms had sales of $500,000 or more. So although there's a small percent of farms, the large sales categories have large percent of production. Total land in farms decreased 1.9 million acres from the previous year. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit Agnet West online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at Agnet West on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Danielle Leal, Brian German, and Sabrina Halvertson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. Agnet West Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.